Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 9, and we will be looking at verses 18 to 34. Again, Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. Please turn there in your Bibles. It's a slightly larger passage than we've been doing in recent months, but it's time to kick it up a notch. And so we will work our way through these verses this morning. This is the Word of God. Listen to it. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men following him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let us pray. Our gracious God, you have laid before us many things in your word this morning. We ask, O Lord, that you would teach us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us humble hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would enable us, dear Lord, to sit under your teaching and be shaped by it. We pray, Lord, that where our hearts are hardened, you would soften them. We pray, Lord, that where our ears are closed, You would open them. We ask, Lord, that where our eyes are blinded, You would give us sight. And we pray, dear Lord, that those who are dead in sin and trespasses would be resurrected, would be brought to life by the proclamation of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, because Your Word has the power to save. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you will remember that in last week's passage, this, uh, the passage immediately preceding this, that uh, the disciples of John the Baptist came uh, to Jesus. And they had a question for them, for him. They asked him, why is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? 
And you remember Jesus' response. He gently rebuked them. He told them that while the bridegroom is with them, his disciples will not fast. They are celebrating the presence of their bridegroom. Well, as Jesus' response showed, John, the, John's disciples had the wrong expectations for the Messiah. They were expecting one thing. They were expecting one type of behavior. But Jesus was living out another. They expected Jesus and His disciples to behave like them. But Jesus showed them that their expectations of Him were wrong. And He used illustrations. And you remember those illustrations of new cloth on old garments of new wine and old, uh, old wineskins. And you remember how Jesus described it, that there would be a tearing away if this was attempted, that there would be a bursting of the wineskins if they attempted to put His new wine in their old ways. Jesus is telling them that He is able to do far more than John's disciples could ever expect or imagine, that He is calling on them to enlarge their expectations of Him. And it is in the context of the preceding passage uh, that we must understand our passage this morning. Matthew intends for, uh, for these healings to uh, be seen in the light of what he has said before. He intends them to be seen as proof that Jesus is pouring out the fresh wine of the new covenant. But Jesus' healings of these people also vividly illustrate the point that Jesus made to the Pharisees back in verses 12 and 13 of this chapter when He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not sinners. Excuse me, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in the space of 17 verses, in these verses that you have before you, Matthew proclaims to his readers the amazing power of Jesus Christ. He has authority over everything we think has dominion over us. And he comes bringing mercy instead of demanding sacrifice. I would ask you now to think on this as we work our way through these verses this morning. Jesus breaks the power of sickness, of death, and of Satan's kingdom. Because He came to set sinners like you and me free. Again, Jesus breaks the power of sickness, of death, and of Satan's kingdom because He came to set sinners like you and me free. I've divided this passage into four sections. Verses 18 and 19 and 23 and 26, a dead girl rises. Verses 20 to 22, always unclean. Verses 27 to 31, two blind men. In verses 32 to 34, a muted man. Again, a dead girl rises, verses 18 to 19, and verses 23 to 26. Always unclean, verses 20 to 22. Two blind men, verses 27 to 31. And a muted man, verses 32 to 34. So let's look at these verses uh, that talk about this dead girl who was brought back to life. Verse 18 says that while Jesus was speaking to the disciples of John the Baptist, a ruler came before him and he knelt. And we learn from uh, the Gospels of Mark and Luke that the ruler's name was Jairus and he was an elder in the synagogue. And like the leper at the beginning of chapter 8, this man bowed down, he knelt before Jesus and he begged him to heal, to heal his daughter. This man saw in Jesus, a greater authority than he had as an elder, as a ruler of the synagogue. 
Jairus had an astonishing request. It wasn't that his daughter was simply ill, like everyone else who had preceded him had asked. It wasn't as if she was simply suffering from palsy or from leprosy or something. She was dead, he said. But he came to Jesus and said, If you touch her, you will make her live. This was a a desperate faith that this man had. This man obviously loved his daughter, as any parent can understand. And to witness her death must have been an overwhelming thing for this man. And so, he comes to Jesus and he begs him. He is desperate. And it is a desperate faith that brings him before Jesus, that causes him to bow down and to beg for mercy. Now, it was a surprising faith that this man had. It was desperate, but it was surprising because no one had been healed up to this point. No one had been brought back to life up to this point in Jesus' ministry. This is the first time it's recorded in the Gospels. What an assumption this man makes that Jesus is able to do this. But Jairus has seen, he has heard of what Jesus has been doing throughout the Galilean region. He's aware of what Jesus is capable of. He has cast out demons. He has healed the sick. And he hopes that Jesus can do what he's never heard of with his daughter. And this hope propels him to go to Jesus. This hope causes him to believe that Jesus can bring his daughter back to life. And so he says to Jesus at the end of verse 18, But come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And in verse 19, Jesus and his disciples follow the man to his house. And verse 23 says that when they arrived, there were mourners there. There were crowds, there were flute players, and they were making this great commotion. Now, believe it or not, in that day it was very common for there to be professional mourners. There were people who were paid, they were hired to come in and mourn the loss if someone had died. And death was a very common occurrence in that culture. And in ancient, all ancient cultures, in much of the world today, People are much more accustomed to death and seeing death than we are. Undoubtedly, these people expected to be paid handsomely by this ruler of the synagogue. But Jesus tells them to clear out. In order to silence the weeping and wailing, Jesus tells them that the girl isn't dead, she's she's asleep. Now these people were professionals. They had seen death countless times. And they were no, uh, no doubt unfazed by the presence of a corpse. But the fact was, they knew a dead person when they saw one. And so when Jesus said the girl was asleep, what did they do? They laughed at him. The Greek word there gives the, uh, the idea that they, they laughed down at him. They laughed him down. They mocked him. Now, some have sought to lessen the miracle by taking literally what Jesus said about the girl being asleep. They say, well, surely the girl was really asleep. But the circumstances that surround this whole situation counter that argument. Look at what's going on here. The father father himself tells Jesus that the girl is dead. You have the presence of these professional mourners and their reaction to Jesus when he says that she's asleep. You have the fact that the report of what Jesus did spread throughout the whole district as we read in verse 26. These all contradict the notion that the girl is truly asleep. So why would Jesus say this? Why would he say the girl's asleep when she was truly dead? Well, one commentator says that Jesus makes a remark directed towards the future, which the crowd takes as directed toward the past. 
They hear diagnosis. Jesus offers prognosis. They know for a fact that she was dead. Jesus knows for a fact that by restoring her to life, He will make this period of death into nothing more than a period of sleep. Jesus simply makes a statement about her condition based upon what He knows He will do. And so He says, the girl sleeps. It's much like declaring a person person to be righteous based on Christ's righteousness, even though the person continues to be a sinner. Jesus declares that she is alive based upon the fact that He knows He will raise her from the dead. And how does Jesus raise her from the dead? We read that Jesus touches her hand. Touching a corpse was the most serious type of uncleanness that a person could contract. In the Old Testament, to touch a corpse meant that you were unclean for a period of seven days. In verse 25, Jesus shows His compassion. He shows His compassion by touching this girl's hand. He raises her up. But He also shows His invincible purity. His impurity, excuse me, His purity which cannot be assailed. He takes her by the hand. He is not fearful of his condition. He doesn't worry about contracting uncleanness because he knows that he cannot be made unclean. But what does this teach us? What does this this account of the raising of this dead girl to life teach us? It teaches us that not even death, not even death, our great enemy, which people in our society are so obsessed with avoiding, Not even death has power over Jesus Christ. Not even death can resist the almighty power of the Son of God. Death's strong bands could not resist His unspoken command to release the girl from its grip, just as it could not resist Jesus' power when He broke forth from the grave on the third day. This is what this passage teaches us. You have nothing to fear from death if you believe that Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins. Well, let's look now at verses 20 and 22, always unclean. Right in the middle of this passage about uh, Jairus and his daughter, there's a, uh, there are a couple of verses, three verses that talk about a woman. A woman who's being healed, who has been healed from a very lengthy illness. Now, in verse 19, Jesus has gotten up from his seat and he is following Jairus back to his house. And in verse 20, Matthew says that there was a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years who came up from behind Jesus and touched the, the fringe of his garment. Now, many of you are aware of what Leviticus 15 and the description of ritual impurity it gives for women who are menstruating. Uh, there's no need to go into great detail here. The Greek word that Matthew uses in verse 20, which is translated discharge of blood, makes it clear that the woman is suffering from a constant menstruation. The modern medical term for her condition is menorrhagia. This condition meant that in addition to a constant flow of blood, she was ceremonially unclean. She could have no contact with other people. In fact, cutting through the crowd, doing what she did to touch Jesus' garment, what she did was prohibited by the law. She could not come close to other people because she wouldn't know who she had touched and made unclean. And her condition also likely meant that either she had never been married or that if she had been married, she was divorced. 
because of the law's prohibition against any physical contact. So for the last 12 years, she had been perpetually unclean. She was as unclean as those lepers had been. And she was as ostracized as a leper too. And like Jairus, the only hope that she had was that Jesus could heal her and that that propelled her to go to Him. She didn't care at this point. She had to find Jesus. She had to track Him down. She followed Him. She touched Him. She truly believed that He had the power to to make her well. But she also believed that He had the power to make her clean. And verse 21 gives us insight into her thoughts. For she said to herself, If I only touch His garment, I will be made well. When Jesus saw her reaching out to touch Him, what did He do? Did He recoil? No. He encouraged her. Verse 22 says, Jesus turned and seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. He tells her to take heart, literally to be courageous. He calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. She hasn't felt the touch of her father in at least 12 years. She doesn't know what it, does not know what it means to be treated kindly and with compassion. Jesus tells her, I understand. I understand that you are lonely. And I understand that you are hurting. And then he assures her that she has placed her faith in the right person. Her faith has not gone astray. She has put her faith in Jesus Christ. He says to her, your faith has made you well. She believed. And Jesus Christ counted it to her as righteousness. And He healed her. Not only from her uncleanness, not only, excuse me, not only from her illness, her, her sickness, but from this perpetual uncleanness that she had had for 12 years. She believed in Jesus. And He saved her. Let's turn now and look at verses 27 to 31. Two blind men. Verse 27 says that Jesus passed on from there. And as He went, two blind men followed Him and cried out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. Now these men were aware of Jesus. They were aware of what He had done. And as, they moved on, as He moved on, they followed Him. They couldn't see what He had done. But they knew it. They heard the reports. And as with the ruler of the synagogue and the woman who touched Jesus' garment, these men were desperate. They were desperate by their circumstances. They were desperate because they were blind. Their only means of having food to eat was by begging for money. And in in contrast to the unbelieving Pharisees who had witnessed Jesus' miracles with their own two eyes and yet refused to believe, these men fully believed and they trusted And what did they do? They asked for mercy. Have mercy on us. They call Him Son of David. They call Him this messianic title. They are aware of who Jesus is. They saw far more than most sighted people around them saw. And when Jesus entered the house, as verse 28 says, says, which was probably uh, whichever house served as His and His disciples' base, these men followed Him in. And Jesus asked them if they believed He was able to heal them of their blindness. How did they respond? 
Yes, Lord. Their condition had made them desperate, but they clearly believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord. And Jesus touched their eyes and He said to them, According to your faith, be it done to you. And they were healed. As with the leper in chapter 8, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone what had happened. He gave these men a stern warning, the passage says. Jesus was concerned that He would be overwhelmed by the crowds of people, that He would be unable to effectively minister as He needed to minister. He had a concern here to teach His disciples. He was preparing to send them out, and we'll see that in chapter 10. And so He had a desire not to be inundated by the crowds of people who would come around Him. But verse 31 says that they went out and they spread His fame throughout the entire district. It's hard to blame these men for their enthusiasm. They'd been blind, and now they could see. They'd been desperate, and Jesus had healed them. But some of us here right now may be going through desperate times. Some of you may be dealing with sickness. Some of you may be grieving, mourning. What are you desperate about? Do you feel as if you are enslaved to some sin that you cannot shake? Are you in dire straits financially and do not know how you're going to get out from it? Is your marriage on shaky ground? Are you concerned for how you will make it through another year? The people in these verses were desperate. They came after Jesus. They sought Him out. But what's more, they believed in Him. They trusted that Jesus Christ could save them. Not only were they desperate, plenty of people are desperate. But these people believed. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He could save them. You see, these people, their desperation was coupled with hope. And the hope that they had was fueled by faith. It's one thing to be desperate, but it is quite another to be desperate and cast yourself at the feet of Christ and beg for His mercy, believing that He alone can save you. But this is precisely what God's Word calls you to do this morning. Let's look now at the last few verses. Verses 32 to 34. A muted man. In these verses we encounter a man who is so overwhelmed that he is incapable of seeking Jesus out. He's incapable of going after Jesus as these other four people have done. And so he is taken to Jesus. He's oppressed by a demon to the point that he is unable to talk. Now, sometimes in, in, in the translation that I'm preaching from, the English Standard Version, uh, they will use the word demon-possessed, demon-oppressed. It's the same word in the Greek. The man was obviously under the power and the dominion of satanic forces. The blind men cried out to Jesus, but this man could not speak at all. He could not beg for mercy. He could not ask Jesus to heal him. He was under the domination of the kingdom of Satan. Now the word that's translated mute literally means blunt. It means dull. He was so thoroughly under the power of this demon that his senses were completely dulled. You don't have to be uh, demon-oppressed or demon-possessed to be dulled, for your senses to be dulled, for you to effectively be silenced and unable to cry out to the Lord. 
And like this man, you may be unable to do anything for yourself. This man couldn't even ask to be freed from bondage. And yet when he was brought to Jesus, what did Jesus do? He freed him. He let him go. He cast out the demon, as verse 33 says. And, and then the, and the mute man spoke. And when he spoke, the crowds marveled. And they said, never was anything like this seen in Israel. All of Jesus' ministry, everything that he did from the time that he entered into the public ministry, from the time he was baptized by John the Baptist, all of it was directed at breaking the power of Satan that was keeping mankind in bondage. But casting out demons gave the, the clearest proof of what Jesus was doing. Since the fall of Adam, Satan had exercised his power over the world. But God promised just after the fall that the offspring of Adam would bruise Satan's head. He made that promise in Genesis chapter 3. And this is clearly fulfilled when Jesus casts out demons. And when He casts out this demon this morning, you can see that, that prophecy, that promise, come to fruition. But the Pharisees who witnessed this said that Jesus cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons. They attributed his power over demons to Satan himself. When presented with the facts of who Jesus is, when presented with what he has done, how do they react? They refuse to believe. The blind men who couldn't see a thing believed in Jesus. And yet these men who could see, they witnessed what Jesus had done. They were eyewitnesses to many of his miracles. They heard his teaching. And yet they refused to believe. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And what did they say? They said that Jesus, the Son of God, was an agent of Satan. Charles Spurgeon in his commentary on the book of Matthew says that they bordered very closely here on committing the unforgivable sin, which was to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, by attributing something that Jesus had done to the power of Satan. They were in very close danger. These Pharisees had the evidence that they could see and hear. The dead were raised. The lame walked. The blind received their sight. The mute were able to, walk, to talk. These Pharisees had the presence and the testimony of Jesus Christ Himself. He was right in front of them. He spoke directly to them. But still, they refused to believe. Now many today, many who are unable and unwilling to believe in Jesus Christ say, well, if only I could see the things that He did. Maybe then I'd believe. You have it. You have it before you in God's Word. God's Word says that, that Jesus came and that He was the last of the prophets. And that He spoke with finality. God spoke with finality in Jesus Christ. You don't need anything more. If you don't believe God's Word, you wouldn't believe it if Jesus stood before you and performed a miracle. The Word of God is just as powerful a testimony of, to us of who Jesus is and what He has done as what Jesus did on earth 2,000 years ago. And we are no different from the Pharisees if we persist in our unbelief. But now, some 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ continues to break the power of sickness, of sin, of death, the devil. He continues to burst the bonds that have been placed on this world, which has been put under the curse 
and under the wrath of God. He continues to set sinners like you and me free. By His death on the cross, He has defeated all of our enemies. Through His resurrection from the dead, He raises us from the dead. He brings us to life. He, he, he breathes life into us. And there's only one thing that's asked of you. There's only one thing that's asked. Repent and believe. All Jesus requires of you is to repent of your sins and to believe in Him as the Son of God. And He will break you free. If you are entrapped, if you are enslaved, if you feel like you can't go anywhere because you are suffocated by the power of all that Satan has to throw against you, believe in Jesus Christ. He promises that He will save you. He can free us from from whatever holds us in its grip. He can heal us from our infirmities. He can cleanse us from our sins. Do you believe that He is able to do this? All He wants is for you to answer, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Let us come before our Lord in prayer. Almighty God, what a blessing it is to profess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to hear of those who believed and who Jesus healed. Thank You, Lord, that You have seen fit to turn the curse, to break us free from our bondage, to release us from our enslavement. We pray, dear Lord, that You would cause us now to walk in newness of life. Enable us, dear Lord, to love You and to obey You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.